This is Bill Barry. We hope you've enjoyed our features on Movies Till Dawn. Stay tuned now for right, News Watch. Thanks for watching Movies Till Dawn. And remember, La Habra Dodge has vans, motorhomes, new and used cars at 951 South Beach Boulevard, La Habra Dodge. See you here this weekend. Movies Till Dawn has also been brought to you in part by the Federated Group, Federated California's year-round hi-fi show. Channel 5 invites you to enjoy two great classics this weekend. Saturday, it's The Bluebird with Shirley Temple. We've got to find a bluebird. It's terribly important. A bluebird? All this fuss about a bluebird. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFolita, and I'm like, whatever. Half of you listening to this podcast will know and love uh, Jerry Schatzberg and, and be fascinated by this. And another half, I'm going to have to give you just a little more info than I usually do about who this extraordinary man is. Jerry is a, a photographer. He's, he's a true artist. He's a wonderful filmmaker. And he's a survivor. Jerry Schatzberg has been doing this work uh, since the 1950s and made his name I, th I feel like fashion photography sounds a little reductive. Uh, he was always an artist, and Bob Dylan saw this early on, and, and he, uh, you know, he kind of made Jerry his official photographer in a sense. Jerry shot the iconic cover of Blonde on Blonde in 1966, um, and uh, there, there's a there's a, a wonderful book of uh, Dylan images by Jerry that was published in 2006 called Thin Wild Mercury, which I highly recommend. Jerry's photographs of people, his portraits are they're they're strange and and unusual, and they're very beautiful and they're very personal. And I don't know anyone who hasn't learned something from Jerry's looking at you and about themselves. And I don't know anyone who dislikes them either. I think Jer Jerry has that photographer's way of penetrating uh, your soul and teaching the subject something about themselves too. He also does something kind of cool that I, I don't know how public he's gone with this or not, but he walks around the streets of New York, where he, he's a total New Yorker, lives on the Upper West Side, and to this day he walks around with his iPhone, and he looks for junk on the street, he looks for trash, that he sees art in. And when you see the pictures he takes with his iPhone, they don't look like crap lying on the sidewalk in New York, they look like kind of artful collections of things and colors and shapes. He told me that he doesn't do anything to them. There's no manipulation. He just, he sees things on the street that you and I would simply pass by. And he sees that there's a way to at least reframe with his, with his phone. And uh, the, I, I love everything he does, but that's one of the things that I find most um, inspiring in a way, because he's literally not working with actors, artists, story, anything but junk on the street, and only a real artist can look at crap and see the beauty in it. Um, this is a conversation I had with him where a lot of the time is spent on his second movie, and it's an iconic film of the early 1970s. It's called Panic in Needle Park. It's Al Pacino's first starring role, and really it's his, I think it's only his second or third movie that he was in. A, a lot of times people... 
will watch a movie from the early 70s or from a period and go, well, from that period, it's effective or, you know, it, it's kind of a snapshot of its time. Uh, but Panic in Needle Park goes a little bit beyond that. It reminds me of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins' film, where, you know, when I watched Moonlight, I was so convinced I was in the world and I so hated the world I was in that I was, I was mesmerized by it and, and by its artistry, and I also kind of couldn't wait to escape. And Jerry did that in Panic in Needle Park. His uh, landscape was the Upper West Side of New York City in the early 70s and the lives of heroin addicts. Uh, back then, the area around Broadway in the West 70s uh, was where junkies lived. Uh, the movie was shot on location. The performances are so naturalistic that you can't believe And, of course, you didn't know Pacino at that time. So there was unknowns, essentially, in, in the movie. It, it's harrowing, and, and you can't take your eyes off of the bad accident that it shows. So we talk a lot about that, but we also, we also talk about later films he made, including a, a kind of wonderful and raw recounting of his experiences almost making A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand. He also talks about the fraught set of a, a very good movie that I just saw recently, again, on cable called Honeysuckle Rose, uh, country music movie starring Willie Nelson. It's a pretty free-ranging conversation. Jerry's a marvelous, friendly, warm, and very natural guy, but, you, you know, I walk away every time I, I hang out with him. I say, this is who I want to grow up and be. And and it, it, it's, wonderful. it's wonderful to see someone like him still wandering the streets, taking pictures with his iPhone. Here's my conversation with Jerry Schatzberg. It was funny because I, I watched the movie again this morning, preparing to, to, to come here. I watched Panic in Needle Park. And you hated it. You hated it. It is so, it, it, no, it is so good. It is so raw. It's, it's unbearable at times. And you taste New York in another era. And when I walked out of my apartment to come here, I fully expected to be in that 1970. New York well, City. There's an interesting story about that also, because uh, in the middle of the film, Daryl Zanuck fired his son, who was the head of production, Richard Zanuck, and uh, David Brown. And he took over as chairman of the uh, board. And he called in Dominic Dunn and myself. Dominic Dunn was the producer, and myself. We come to this office, big office, big desk, big cigar, and a little man <laughs> behind the desk, you know. And we came in there, and here's this uh, legend, and we're coming in there to talk to him. He said he, he had sat through all the dailies with his girlfriend as, they were, as we were shooting, and he loved the film. He knew everything that I was trying to do, using the long lenses and opening up and closing it up as if we're just capturing something. And, you know, he, he really was remarkable as a filmmaker. Which is kind of amazing, given that this is a guy who goes back to the 1930s yeah, and you would expect... But one of my favorite films that he did was Snake Pit. And then in, a, uh, in an article that I have somewhere, uh, I read that he compared it to the Snake Pit. He said it was his favorite film since the Snake Pit. Wow. The intersection at Broadway and 72nd Street on New York's west side 
is officially known as Sherman Square. It's called Needle Park. It is here in the neighborhood of Needle Park that drug addicts live and steal and hustle and somehow manage to exist from one day to the next. And it's here that Bobby and Helen find each other. How did 20th Century Fox, who did Hello Dolly the year before, wind up greenlighting this movie and, and... Dominic Dunn went to a party, cocktail party, and he was talking to uh, Helen Gurley Brown, and he was telling her this story. And she said, well, that's an interesting story. Why don't you tell it to David? So he told it to David, and David said, oh, that's an interesting story. Maybe we'll do that. So it was a novel? No. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a book, mm. but it was a book uh, from a story in Life magazine I by James Mills. Then James Mills wrote a book about the article that he wrote for them. And then uh, Dunn Didion, John Dunn, uh, John Dunn and Joan Didion, took it and wrote a screenplay. They actually lived in the hotel around there for a week and went through you know, some things there. I had just finished my first film, and the lab had scratched the last six minutes of my negative. I mean, they didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> there was a screw came loose or something, and it went along. and. Uh, and I was very upset. And my agent had seen the film, and she loved the film. And she said, uh, you know, we've got, we're looking for a director for um, this film called Panic and Eagle Park. Says, Why don't you read it? I read it, and I was partly so upset, and partly I didn't know, you know, I had a lot of friends that were into drugs and had died and all that, but I just didn't know if I wanted to do something about that. And uh, I turned it down. And uh, then I went up to, um, Marty Bregman's office, and Marty was my business manager. So he said, you know, there's a good script out there. And I said, you know, what is it? And he said, uh, call Panic and Needle Punk. I said, you know, Marty, I think I turned that down. He said, oh, I think it's a good script. I said, I don't know drugs and all. He says, it's a good script, you know. He says, and Al's interested, because by now he's representing Al. I said, wow, okay. So I went back and I reread it. And now knowing who my character is, I, I'm reading the script totally different. I, I want to do this now, and I want to do it with Al. So he, uh, I went back to them, I apologized to them, I told them how foolish I was, they said, yes, you're right, but they went ahead and they said, okay, let's, let's, get, let's start over again. And I told them about Pacino, what I felt about Pacino. And at one point I remember, <coughs> I remember uh, Dominic saying to me, you know, I'm talking to people about Al, and they said, the only thing he can do is that screaming and hollering. I said, well, I don't know about that, but I can use that in this film. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in. That was the Babe Ruth of West 81st Street. That's right. I hit that ball. I hit the ball on the roof one time, right? I went up to get it. There was this crap game going on, right? I won $79 before my next turn at bat. Huh? I'm the greatest! He said, okay. And then, he, uh, then Fox decided they didn't want Pacino. Well, he hadn't really started anything. He, had, he, he was in a small role in uh, Me Natalie, I think. Yeah. yeah. A small role. So he hadn't done anything in, in, in the film. Uh, so then, then the Fox decided they didn't want him. They didn't want him. They said he was too old. He was 31, looking like 12, you know. So uh, <laughs> they must have read his birth certificate or something, and they decided, no, they got to get somebody young. And they recommended a few people that I just couldn't live with. So uh, to Nick's credit, he said, look, let's go through the charade of casting and then we'll see what, you know, we'll tell him, no, it's got to be Pacino. We do that. The last person to come in to read for me is Robert De Niro. 
<laughs> it's not a bad actor, you know. <laughs> so uh, it really uh, put me in a quandary for a while. Uh, but I, I loved Al, and I, and I just knew Al was that character. One day I'm, uh, I'm on Third Avenue looking at an Army Navy store, and I hear a voice in the back of me say, Hey, man, I really want to do that film. I turn around, it's De Niro. And I didn't know what to do, you know. <laughs> and I, he really caught me by surprise, and I told him the truth. And he looked at me, and he turned around and walked away. And through the years, you know, we see each other at functions and all that, we sort of nod to one another. That's about the... the that was the end of it. And, and uh, one of his best friends, Barry Primus, was always seeing him, and when he... When, he come, when Barry would come to see me, he'd say, oh, Bobby said to say hello. You know, he didn't say hello, but Bobby said right. to say hello. Okay. He's still pissed. Uh, well, <laughs> and I understand that, because uh, I know other actors that have done the same thing when they didn't get a part. But uh, we had, uh, there was a, a, a tribute to Morgan Freeman about three, four months ago, and I was one of the speakers, and De Niro was one of the speakers. And uh, so we, we did our little speech, and then uh, Morgan came up and he made his speech, and they wanted us to come back on stage for photographs. And we did, I came out, and De Niro was the last one to come out. And De Niro walks past me, and he stops, and he comes back and says, Hi, Jerry. <laughs> After 40 years. <laughs> Another thing that occurs to me, though, now that I think of it, is Zanuck started as a writer at Warner Brothers in the 30s, and those were social protest movies. So he must have had it in his well, blood I, that he I, wanted I, I to was, see. I was a kid when I saw Snake Pit, and boy, I was impressed. It was really a heavy-duty film, yeah. as, as this is. You know, it's not... Um, I remember Faye came to a screening and she said, oh, very nice. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that was the best description of the film, but... There's no music to it, which gives it such a stark... Uh... We, we did uh, do a score, though. Uh, Ned Roram did a score, and every time I put a cue in, I just didn't like it. And I just took it out and took it out, and finally I said, no, uh, the street is enough music. I love the opening over black with the sound of the train. Yeah. You know, it, it takes you into that, this is what it's going to be. We all have our little uh, pet things. I was listening to um, Olivier essay he was being interviewed on um, NPR, and um, he's telling his shtick of what he does, you know, and I think we're all full of it. You know, we all have our own little things that we get on, and we, we pontificate about things that, you know, but I know when, when I write something, I'm writing it for a reason, and it may be a bullshit reason, but I'm writing it for a reason. And uh, and I like to think that nobody else has done that. I'd probably, if I knew enough about film history, I'd find that 40 other directors did something like that. I just go by instinct on, on things like that, you know, especially uh, the one I'm working on now, which you know, I, I like the opening, and um, and I hope it's, but, but the opening has to tell you, has to make the audience curious about what the rest of the film's gonna be, for me. Right. You know, because if you don't get an audience in the first five or 10 minutes, you know, they say, oh, okay, let's go on to the next one. When you were <clears throat> approached to direct it, or when you, when you agreed to direct it, did you explain to them the way you were gonna shoot it, that it was going to feel verite, that you were, that you were not shooting it? Really? Yeah, because. Adam uh, Hollander, the. Yeah. the who also did Midnight Cowboy. Yes, that's right, yeah. And that's where I first saw his work. And uh, I remember my uh, production manager was trying desperately to talk me out of him because maybe Adam had a little temper tantrum or something and he heard that Adam was difficult. Adam's a pussycat, he's not difficult. You know, he's got a, a, a mind of his own. And, uh, and we 
for the most part, always gotten along. What did they think when your dailies started coming in and they saw you were shooting? Well, I didn't get any word at all from uh, from uh, Zanuck or um, David Brown. They just let us go. We were just going. I think it's it's one of those things that it didn't cost them that much and they get a tax write-off. They just, okay, we'll see what we get in the end. And they didn't really spend much time. The only time that, and the only time that I had any feedback from uh, Zanuck, the older one, was when he just wanted to introduce himself to us and tell us that he knows what we're doing and, uh, you know, evidently liked what we were doing. But you had an interesting setup in that Dominic Dunn is producing a screenplay by uh, his brother, John Gregory Dunn, and his wife. Sister-in-law. Uh, sorry, sister-in-law, uh, Joan Didion. Is there a kind of, uh, you've got a lot of people together on one side. Did you have a, 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 uh, a confrontational or... It was it was a little difficult because I like to, uh, if an actor has a difficult time or if I see a, a chance for him to improvise and make it better, I like to uh, go with it. And uh, Dominic uh, would walk out of the screening room sometime just furious, you know, and he wouldn't get into it. He, what can he do, uh, you know? Because you had departed from the script. Uh, well, I don't think I ever departed from the script. I may have departed from the words. But that doesn't take away from the script. No, that's a great distinction, yeah. I listened to Joan Didion's interview, and she says, no, it's not that Jerry uh, didn't like the dialogue. He doesn't like any dialogue, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was such a great quote to put in there. I'll put it in a minute. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, again, the the distinction between uh, uh, script and in improvisation, it, it, you don't leave the script. What you do is you create a live environment that you believe yeah. telling the story that's and, told and in the scene. And these characters can tell it better than the words that I had there. Mm-hmm. So, and and uh, when, whenever I've been asked that uh, Q&As and all that, did you leave the script? Is it? No, uh, we've always uh, done the same script. It's the story is the same, because if you read it and you, and you don't listen to the words, just see the film, and you'll say, oh yeah, that's what I, I read before. It's all there. But of course, some people become so possessive about um, what they do, all of us. And, uh, but we have to serve the talent that we hire, the other talent we hire. Because if, if, I, <clears throat> if I hire Adam Hollander, which I did, and I took him out to uh, California for my first film to show him this um, camper that uh, this uh, director of photography who was on I Spy. He had this camper where he had small light setups, small stands, small everything to fit into this camper. So they put on a plane and they traveled all around the world doing I Spy. And I thought that was a great idea because I come into this, uh, this film world uh, from being able to take one camera and go like this, you know, and I was mobile, and this seemed like such a restriction, so I wanted him to be able to get me uh, things that, uh, without uh, work, worrying about big cameras and lights and all that, and Adam went up and said, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying to me, but, you know, my training is very classic from Loach in uh, Poland, and just tell me what you want, and I'll get it for you. But let me have my equipment. Let me do what I do. I said, okay, and he did. And you know, I, I remember him struggling in a tiny toilet because I don't build sets. Uh, struggling in a tiny toilet with this big Mitchell camera, but it's beautiful what he <laughs> yeah. got me. You know, that's all I care about. How long did the uh, Panic in Needle Park shoot? I think it may have been 
we may have had eight weeks. I'm not sure. So not a, not a quickie. You had you had no, time no, to work. Yeah, we had time to work. Uh, I'll say six or eight weeks, but I think it was eight weeks mm -hmm. at that time. I didn't know the. I think Bobby uh, figured out the uh, time schedule and uh, went along with it. Was Pacino surprised because he comes from the theater where the words are, you know, sacred, at the amount of freedom that you gave him to to improvise and to express, you know, in his own way to find that performance? Had he had that before? Uh, I don't know. You know whether well, not on the stage he wouldn't because that's the word is law. Right, you know? and he only had one film before this. Yeah, but I th I think Al is just a natural. Uh, one actor, you know, and, and giving him this to do, he, he knows that he may not have to say, do you want to eat something, or, you know, or is it coffee? Just pick up a cup. You know, he doesn't have to say, you want coffee? You know, and... Uh, He's got this great mannerism, and it, you see it largely in the opening of the film before he gets progressively, you know, deeper into his, in his junkiedom. He's constantly moving his mouth, like there's something in it, while he's smoking, and he's bobbing his head, and you're like, this guy's energy is so out of control. And I always wonder every time he's I watch like it, I'm like... That, he's not like that in person. So it must be something he incl included in his character. And I, I wondered, because when I watched it again today, I went, no, this is, I think, an actor going, I need to make a progression. I need to start as hyper, and he's almost like the street rat scurrying yeah. around, and, and gradually turns and into... And that's what I say. I don't know their uh, process. Yeah. I don't know what, you know where it comes from, but I know if I like it, you know, and I say, I don't think it works, or I do, it's fantastic, or whatever. He, uh, I mean, we, we had a, a great time uh, at the beginning, because we had about a month, month and a half, that he, Kitty, and I just hung out together. We went to uh, coffee shops where the druggies hung out. We went to the hospital and took part in seminars without them knowing what we were doing. They thought we were junkies. And we, we just felt the whole thing together. So the research phase was really your rehearsal period? Or, or a research period. You know, to, uh, you know, Kitty knew nothing about drugs. Al's brother, I think, was into drugs, and he had probably a lot of friends that were into it. So Al had a different point of view. But Kitty came from total innocence, you know, which is what I wanted in that character. They, they, they wanted me to use Mia Farrow. I said, everybody will be thinking about her divorce from Frank Sinatra <laughs> rather than uh, whether Al's going to shoot up again or, you know. Kitty Wynn's an amazing actress, yeah, and I don't quite cool. understand why she, she quit. Everybody but. says that, you know, and uh, I don't know why either. Uh, I know that she did two small things in The Exorcists after that. A lot of theater. And she did theater. That's, but, where, that's where Nick discovered her. Nick found her mm -hmm. in San Francisco, and that's when he called me and said, you got to see this actress. I went out to California, and we had lunch, and it's just what I was looking for, you know, somebody which I would think is from the Midwest, which she wasn't, basically. And uh, it's funny because um, we had a great lunch, and then at the end of the lunch I said, um, what, what do you think about the nudity? And she said, what nudity? And I said, well, it's written in the script. Because it was actually written that, you know, how can two people be living together and the other one's holding a sheet up to her, you know, or something. I said, you know, it's, it's got to be total freedom. And she said, oh, well, let me read it again. You know, so she went to Mexico on holiday and she sent me a letter and said, no, I've read it, I think it's fine. You know, I said, great, you know, and we went ahead and started uh, working. Then every time we'd uh, schedule it, 
she'd have some excuse why, uh, well, uh, I don't feel good, or, you know, whatever. And uh, finally we get it together to schedule. I said, Kitty, I'm making it as comfortable as possible. There's going to be hardly anybody there, but we've got to do it. We've got to shoot it now. And uh, she said, okay, and she did it. And then I found out after that she's the granddaughter of General George Marshall. <laughs> and uh, she was just worried about what her grandmother was going to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. Tell me about the, um, the injection, the, the heroin injecting things. They're, they're, you linger on them. They're incredibly painful to watch that needle going into that vein. Well, yeah. that's what I figured because uh, we didn't know about that. I mean, I think it's the first film that did that. I don't, know, I, I don't know, there were probably some after that that uh, did that, but I think, um, I think one, of, one of them is definitely to show you the lifestyle, the other one is sexual, because it, it really only happens twice. You think it's more, but it's, and I remember when we had a, a press conference in Cannes, we were competing with Andy Warhol's Trash, and there were people in the press conference that were fans of trash and fighting for it and all that and uh, they, they kept interrupting the thing and saying and one guy said oh you just do things to shock people and all that and I said and I knew what he was talking about and I said well what are you talking about just, well the needle going in all the time and I said well how many times is it seven eight times I said, no two times said, no 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 I said I did the film yeah, trust I know how me. many times you know and uh, you think it's much more because I've shown you that so every time we indicate something, you think it's in again or it's going in again, yeah. things like that, but that's their life. But you really linger on it. I think maybe that's why it feels like you're, well, it's I, hard to I, get I, out of your yeah. head. Well, I, I mean, if I did it today, I probably wouldn't because we know more about it. They're not shooting up real junk. No, they're shooting up uh, saline solution. And that, and that, and that's and all. Then, I mean, I, I, I was really going to say, also, are you sure that's not real? Because it's really painful to watch. Yeah, yeah, but I, but, I, but I, with Kitty, I make sure to go from the needle up to her. So you see that we're not putting another arm, somebody else's arm or something. She's going through the experience. Did you and Kitty Wynn and, and Pacino go to those, sit in those rooms, those, those terrible SRO flop houses where there's five or six junkies lying around. Did you yeah. did you visit those? Yeah. Well, not with junkies because, uh, you know, then they'd know what we were doing there. We do. The only time we, we interacted with the junkies when we go into a, a cafe where we can just sit there and be part of them or when we were in the seminars at the hospital and we were all around in a circle and they, they used us. You know, there was one, this instructor or whatever you call them, uh, he was really reaming it into this one junkie because she brought her boyfriend, who had uh, gone straight, she brought him back into drugs, and he was furious with her, and he was screaming at her and telling her, and how dare you do that? How can you do that? You're a human being. And just, what do you think, me? And I have to say, you know, you're right. It's a terrible thing to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's there crying, and, uh, you know, so... Uh, was there, was there much material cut out of Panic in Needle Park? Did you shoot much that didn't wind up in the film? I don't think so, because, you know, my, my ratio is maybe three to one, and uh, I usually have all I need in those three takes. You know, I'll remember that uh, I, I have that piece there and that piece there, and that'll, that'll make it mm. work. Or I, I don't have to have perfect takes. You know? I, I just think of how that'll go with that and whether it'll work with that. And I have, a, I have to have a cutaway. I had a wonderful um, 
a script supervisor who was a real pain in the ass all the time. So always, no, you better cover that because that and that. And then I'd be so nervous. I, I'm taking too much time. I can't do that. No, I've got what I need. And Paddock Needle Park, remember they're on the ferry? Yeah. And they go into shoot up with the dog. The, it, this is the, another one of the most heartbreaking moments yeah, in the movie. That puppy. Dog. My girlfriend had to stop the movie at that moment. Oh, I stopped taking drugs when I started doing Paddock Needle Park. <laughs> well, that, I, that, I, I just yeah. well, I was sitting. I was sitting in a um, cafe where they hung out, and this girl comes in, and she falls down on her face. She's just so high, and she just falls down. I mean, blood on nose and everything. And it was so shocking. And I said to myself, nothing's going to control me like that, you know. And so I stopped smoking cigarettes. I stopped smoking dope. I didn't stop pills. I was still into pills, not thinking it was dope. You know, it kept me awake when I had to be awake. And that. Booze? Uh, Do you drink? No, I stopped. I haven't, I haven't drank hard whiskey since... Uh, 67, 68, 66, oh, yeah. something like that. But, and I used to drink wine a little bit. When I go to Europe, I drink a glass of wine, something, but I don't drink here at all. Yeah, no, that, that's just an unbearable moment, that day in the country. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, the idol in the country, you, you, when you remember the film, you think it's a very, it's a much more elaborate sequence, and it's really two shots. It's a, it's a medium shot of them buying the dog, and then there's that long lens shot of them wandering through General Woods. It's, yeah. uh, it's so, and so much of the film has that. It, it's spare. Uh, it evokes something with such a simple, you know, simple image, which is, again, where I think of it as very related to your to look photography. At it. I have to look at it again. It, looks, it sounds great. <laughs> Whether you're uptown or down home, nothing beats a day in the country. Willie Nelson is Buck Bonham. For 20 years, he's been singing to the country. Now he's living his own love songs. Loving you is easier than anything I'll ever do again. <laughs> Diane Cannon, Amy Irving, Slim Pickens, and in his first starring role in a major motion picture, a legend, Willie Nelson. Honeysuckle Rose. Honeysuckle Rose was on just like a couple weeks ago. I was yeah. flipping the channels, okay. and there was. Well, like... I like doing that for the film. I did that because I wanted to do a musical, and um, yeah, I traveled around with uh, Willie and and the band for about three months. It was great. Uh, the film probably didn't make it because of the title. Oh. Because uh, the, the original screenplay, which was a really bad screenplay, was written for um, Hoyt Axton. His bus was called Honeysuckle Rose. That's why the film was called Honeysuckle Rose. So we went along with that title over and over and over, and we didn't come up with another title. Then I decided, okay, we'll call his, um, his farm or his ranch Honeysuckle Rose. And you see one shot of him picking up the mail, and it says Honeysuckle Rose on the mailbox. Uh, he, in his contract, was supposed to do six songs for, for the film. Willie Nelson. Yeah. yeah. And he wasn't writing, he wasn't doing anything. And, uh, and Pollock, who was one of the producers, and um, he said, you got to get Willie to write some songs. I said, 
yeah, but he's got in his contract. Why didn't he? he said, well, you know, he just keeps saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're on a, 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 a plane going from Atlanta to Austin. I said to him, Willie, you got to write some songs. You know, the studio was up in arms. They, you know, you committed to writing songs. Well, yeah, I will, I will, I will. I said, Willie, you know, if you don't write any songs, you don't get any Academy Awards. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, songs win Academy Awards. Ah. He immediately took out pencil and paper and he started writing. <laughs> and he wrote this on the plane on the way to there. Now, I didn't read it, but he asked me, he says, well, what, what, do I, what do I write about? I said, you write about your life here. You know, you're, you're, you're a guy, you're on the road all the time. You, uh, you know, you have a wife and a kid there, but you have to leave all the time and you're on the road again. On the road again. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. I didn't hear that <laughs> until maybe two or three months later when we went into pre-production and Willie's starting to play and this song, I went crazy over this song. If, if the film was called On the Road Again, if the film would have been a success. Because right. the song was such a success that he won an Academy Award for it. And instead it was called Honeysuckle Rose, who cares, you know? And, um, <laughs> but but it, it was a shame because I, I, I knew the theater was opening and every time they screened it, for a thousand distributors, they all wanted the film. And when Sidney came in town and he saw Pollock and he said, he says, you're gonna be a star. I said, really? He said, yeah, that film is great and all that. And I said, well, you know, because I don't know if you're the same as I am, but I always look for the mistakes. And mistakes never leave, you know, so I'm waiting, oh, yeah, that's right. And then it goes on to something nice, good song and all that. But then uh, it opened in Westwood. Every theater was jam-packed except the theater for um, Honeysuckle Rose. Now, Mark Rosenberg had a, um, a piece of artwork done with Diane on the top of a bus. It looked like they were on top of a stagecoach. Now, who the hell wants to see this? A Western called uh, Honeysuckle Rose. Uh, yeah, <laughs> with, uh, on top of a stagecoach where Willie Nelson has a, has a nickname, uh, Outlaw. Play up his Outlaw thing, play sure. up something that, you know, and I was really furious with this. So they said, oh, we'll have a meeting with the, uh, with the uh, publicity people. Okay, uh, so we go to the, uh, we take the time, I go down there. I was the first one there, and she says, nobody's here yet, why don't you just have a seat? I have a seat, and his door is open. And he's talking on the telephone, he says, oh, I got a meeting with this pain in the ass director, and all that, and, and she gets up and walks over and closes the door. And I say to myself, oh boy, there's gonna be some meeting. And it was, some meeting, and uh, no, 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 we, we know what advertising is, and blah, 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 blah. And I think they goofed. But I think they mostly goof. I mean, the, to me, it's the most frustrating thing in, yeah, in doing but, but, this is the peop, people who are charged with advertising and film. It's like they the, almost intentionally they, fall. They are the people that cannot get a job at a good advertising agency. <laughs> they, and they give them $100,000 a year to do a big picture of the star or something like that, which is nothing. It means nothing. And, and this is just after the golden age of advertising. I mean, the 60s was just incredible for advertising. Mm -hmm. This, whoever it is, this hack uh, is there. And, and I said, nothing's going to happen with this. And, you know, open, I was really so upset because they had screenings with thousands of, well, I guess hundreds of uh, distributors, and everybody loved the film. Now, did Will, does Willie Nelson smoke as much pot as everyone says? Yeah. Like all the time? Yeah, and not only that, 
the people that come to see Willie at his bus, they bring him homegrown stuff that is unbelievable. And one day, uh, and we had a drama on the set with uh, Amy Irving and Willie and... Uh, Diane Cannon. Diane. Well, I was going to ask you about it, that, it, too. It, was, it wasn't so much with Diane, except that Amy was very rude to her, you know, and I didn't like that. But with Willie and Amy, uh, they started something, and this is... She comes to the set engaged to Steven Spielberg, and, uh, and then I, I saw them in London sitting on a, on a uh, sort of a love seat in the lobby, and I couldn't even talk to them because Amy and I didn't talk at the end. It was, it was really sad what was going on, but, uh, and Sydney came to the set, and uh, Willie, Willie the, the band and everybody, they, they couldn't uh, do coke, but pot they could do as much as they want, and uh, they kept trying to get me to smoke. I wouldn't smoke. Sydney, Sydney knows how to play the game. Sydney was great. I mean, I love Sydney. We were great friends, but he knows how to play the game out there. I didn't know how to play the game out there. So, uh, and Willie gives him some dope, and Sydney starts to smoke it, and he turns gray. <laughs> and he gets off the bus. The bus was parked. He gets off the bus and sits down at the curb, and he couldn't move. It was just so. And everybody's laughing. You know. <laughs> But poor Sidney was really. Uh, Sidney was a good Jewish boy. He yeah, was his Yeah. And then Willie, Willie um, started to accuse me of um, getting at Amy because I liked uh, Diane and started a whole, a whole thing. And I said, uh, well, you know, uh, I don't know what you hear or what you do, but it's not like that. And then we had a big dinner that night, and I sat Willie and Amy together right next to Sidney at the other end of the table uh, when I was leaving. And Amy and Willie had taken mushrooms that night. And as, as I was leaving, I went up behind Sydney and I said, how was dinner, Sid? He turned around and said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as, and as a director, he must have just been looking at you thinking, oh, you poor son of a... Like, you had, well, to, deal with, you had to deal with this drama. Well, you know? I, I had to deal with that. And, and, you know, Amy would come back to, Amy wanted to change the whole script. She wanted she and Willie to end up together. And that's not the film I signed on to do. Right. And, uh, and Sydney came with uh, David Rayfield once, and she heard writer, and she thought I was rewriting the script, and she told Willie that I was rewriting the script, and uh, Willie came to my uh, camper, furious, says, you know, I hear you're rewriting the script, you know, you got to tell me about those things, you know, because he thought I was going to write Amy out of the script. I said, what are you talking about, Willie? Well, you know, you've got a writer come down from New England and he's blah, 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 and all that. I said, come on, I'll show you the writer. And we go into the camper and it's Bill Whitliffe, who was a very good friend of Willie's who had been writing for me to do rewrites. Mm -hmm. And there's Bill Whitliffe and there's Bill Whitliffe, he's writing the script. Yeah, but, but, but he's looking for the writer, you know. And uh, that's what we went through uh, with that. And she, she wanted them to end up going off to Mexico together or some bullshit, you know. And that's not the way the script was written, uh, good or bad. Yeah. Know? It's funny, <clears throat> it was funny watching the film because I'm going, you know, I'm going, there has to be a meta film going on. You've got these two entirely different, totally hot women. You've got Willie Nelson, who's already like a megastar. <laughs> And I was going to ask you, I didn't know if we were going to touch this, but I was like, there has to have been some, that has to have been like a crazy fucking set. Well, you know? it was to a degree, yeah, but 
I, I just stayed clear of them. And, and then, when, because the first thing that happened uh, in editing, I wanted to voice her. You wanted to revoice, revoice Amy? Amy for the singing. And I had found this wonderful country singer that wasn't known or anything, and she was going to do the voice and all that. And Amy found out, and she went to Willie. Willie went to the studio, and they stopped me. Hmm. John Foreman, you know John? Mm -hmm. He was partners, Producer, with, yeah. with, uh, partners with Paul Newman and, and their company. And uh, he called me up and said, I've got this film. And it was it was a musical. I think I think it came before Honeysuckle Rose. In the world of rock music. John Norman Howard was once the best, but he was burning out. Until he met. like the idea, it was a remake of A Star is Born, and Joan and John wrote it. So I figured, well, how bad can it be? I got the script, it was bad. I think they were out of their element, or I don't know, or maybe they had too much interference. I said, uh, I said okay to it, because I wanted to work, and I thought I'd do a musical. And, and uh, then I get a call almost the same time from John Peters, who was with Barbara Streisand. And he says, you know, Barbara and I have this little Mary Sunshine. We wonder if you'd be interested in that. And he tells me about it. And I said, you know, well, it sounds interesting, but I just committed to something. And I said, what is it? And I told him. And uh, Barbara said, well, can we read it? I said, yeah, sure. Sent it to them. They wanted in. Uh, at the time, they were thinking of Cher or uh, Diana Ross. And Warner Brothers was delighted because the first artist was part of Warner Brothers and they could get money from first artists and there's and Barbara Streisand. And I was interested because I wanted to make Barbara Streisand more like Aretha Franklin. And I, th I thought she had the talent and she probably does. And we started and we all agreed that the script needed work. And I had a great meeting with uh, John and Joan and all that and they kept, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when they rewrote it, they were very possessive about what they had written before. So it really presented a problem for me. And because they wanted changes, I wanted changes, and they felt that they had made the changes. And uh, I really had to get rid of them to get another writer. But they had a deal, so they, uh, they got their percentage, even if they were let go, so we could put on another writer. and. Uh, Bob Sherman was the uh, producer, and he says, well, I've got a friend who uh, I like, and he mentioned the name. I said, yes, I know uh, his work and all that. He came on, and he plagiarized everything that was in there, not very well, you know. And I said, oh, this is awful. And he said, it's fantastic. What are you talking about? It's fantastic. I said, no, it's not very good. And uh, I was going out, I was going to the commissary to have lunch with him. Tommy Shaw, you know Tommy Shaw? No. He was the production manager, a great guy, had 10 kids, big fat Irishman. Well, he wasn't fat, he was muscular. And he said, uh, I hear the new script is in, can I read it? I said, yes, absolutely, Tommy. You know, we're going to lunch, you read it while we're at lunch. I come back from lunch and Tommy is sort of, uh, <clears throat> you know, doesn't want to look at me and all that. I said, well, 
Well, you know, I'm a little disappointed. I said, thank goodness, you know. And, I, and Sherman was there. I said, I think it's shit myself, you know. And we got rid of him. And we hadn't put on another writer. And then one day, uh, Peters calls me to his office and uh, says, uh, this is a friend of mine and Barbara's. And, and uh, he's got some ideas about the script. And I said, wait a second, who's this guy? And he said, oh, he's a writer. And I said, yeah, but I don't know him. I, you know, uh, let's, you know, I'll be happy to read his work. I'll look at his work and all that. And then we can talk. And all no, 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 he's got these ideas. You want? I said, no. What if I've already got those ideas and he tells us this idea, then I'm plagiarizing him. And let's, let's go the right way. But by now you're clearly hip to Hollywood and how that could yeah. be. Yeah, and... and, and uh, and uh, the writer says, well, maybe I ought to leave. I said, well, that's probably a good idea. So he leaves, and I say to Peters, don't ever do that to me again. Ah, you're a big baby. Maybe, but, you know, there are things that go on here that if we're, if we're working as a team, then make sure that the team is working together. Because there were other things that happened like that, and Barbara always stuck up for me. You know, I wanted to hire this production manager, and he wanted to get his production manager. And Barbara said, well, you know, it sounds right. He's got to do the film. He's got to do the film. So she went along with it until this point. Then he probably went home, said, it's got to be my way or the highway. So he went to John Callie. John called me in and said, uh, look, it's up to you. He says, you got to listen to what he does or what they say. Otherwise, you got to go. I know that uh, she's going to go home every night with him. They're going to get into bed together, and they're going to talk about the film. And how am I going to direct her? And I didn't want to go home every night with her and get into bed, but, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, let me think about it. I went home. I thought about it. And I told my wife, I'm leaving. You know, and I left. Uh, so, you, so you almost made a star is born. Yeah. So that was my conversation with Jerry Schatzberg. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Mm -hmm.